0: Art happens somewhere along a relational arc between what you are and the object of creation. And that's why art is very often a different experience for each and every person. I'm convinced that the readers who come to my books experience them differently because they're not sitting as passive individuals with this thing called a book being pumped into them, filling their empty reservoir. That's not the way it works. They're coming to a book with a whole life, and it's the relationship between their life and the life inside the book that forms the experience of reading the arc.
1: You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. I'm Michael John Cusick. Today's podcast is a very special encore presentation of a conversation I had in 1996 with novelist, rabbi, theologian, and philosopher Chaim Potok. That interview was originally published in the Mars Hill Review and later published in a book by Professor Daniel Walden called Conversations with Chaim Potok through the University of Pennsylvania Press. Potok's death in 2003 left a deep chasm in the world. His novels and writings are works that I find myself returning to again and again. So for some time now, I've been thinking of sharing this written interview in an audio format, but I had no idea how to get the words from print to voice. That was until my friend Brian Newman, who made his bar mitzvah in Long Island, stepped up to offer reading the part of Kimpotak as I, quote, interviewed him. So what you'll be hearing in parts one and two is the full text of this now classic interview with Chaim Potok. To begin, I'll read the actual text that I wrote when this interview was published in the Mars Hill Review. It would strike some as odd that an ordained rabbi who served a chaplaincy in the Korean War later earned a Ph.D. in philosophy from an Ivy League university, earned a reputation as a world-class Judaic scholar, and wrote several best-selling novels along the way, would be known for his map-making abilities. But Heim Potok has spent the majority of his life doing just that, mapping out the terrain of his Jewish past in novels which have transported both Jew and non-Jew into fictional worlds that transcend religious boundaries. Perhaps best known as the author of The Chosen, which in 1981 was made into a movie starring Robbie Benson and Rod Steiger, Potok is the author of 11 novels, two children's books, and several works of nonfiction, including the critically acclaimed Wanderings, Heim Potok's History of the Jews. Long ago in The Chosen, Potok writes, I set out to draw a map of the New York world through which I once journeyed. It was to be a map not only of broken streets, menacing alleys, concrete-surfaced backyards, neighborhood schools, and stores, a map not only of the physical elements of my early life, but of the spiritual ones as well. The result of such map-making has been an insider's look into opposing world views, conservative Jewish-American culture, and 20th-century secularism, clashing values, beliefs, ideas, and dreams— This has been the underlying tension in all of Potok's work, and it has also been the story of his life. Born in 1929 to Polish immigrant parents, Chaim spent his early years in an Orthodox Jewish home and was educated at parochial schools. At 16, he encountered serious literature, and his life was forever changed. Here was someone trying to give shape to turmoil I myself was experiencing, he writes, a growing sense of a world outside my own. Pulsing sexuality, questions about God and the nature of my own self. Here was an author shaping his deepest thoughts and feelings with language, exploring an interior human terrain I had never thought possible to configure with words. Deeply touched, Potok began to read ravenously and to write. At 18, after having a story accepted by the Atlantic Monthly, he received a letter from the editor who inquired if he was writing a novel. His father, who had planned on his son becoming a teacher of Talmud, was less than enthusiastic about the younger Potok's newfound career choice. In their conservative Jewish world, writers of fiction were looked upon with suspicion. Thankfully, Chaim continued to write, and he has not stopped. My first encounter with Potok occurred at a used bookstore where I found a mint first edition copy of My Name is Asher Lev., Our most recent encounter took place in Philadelphia, where he graciously invited me into his home. As we met in person for nearly two hours, I was struck by this man's kindness and his staggering depth of knowledge. In the room where we met, the author's own expressionist paintings hang in contrast to walls of scholarly books. Illuminating once more the tensions of his life and work, creativity and canon, progress and tradition, faith and reason... As is evidenced by his writing, such tensions are not easily manageable, though for the person of faith they are an essential part of finding one's way in the world. As Potok himself might say, such tensions are an essential part of the map-making process. Chaim Potok, tell me about the transforming encounter you had with literature at the age of 16.
0: Well, my first major encounter with contemporary serious literature was Evelyn Waugh's Bride's Head Revisited. It happened in high school one term when I was reading the established canon of, of literature, classics, especially 19th century classics. I was done with my exams, and I decided for a reason that is not clear to me to this day to read a contemporary adult novel. I went to the public library and browsed around for a while and by sheer chance found Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh. I have no idea what attracted me to it. Maybe it was the fact that it was about upper-class English Catholics. I took the book home and at first found it difficult to get into. But once I grew accustomed to the prose, I became utterly enchanted by that world and by the prose. It was really the first time in my life that I understood the importance of language in the writing of a story. Most of the time, I wouldn't want the language to interfere with the story. I preferred language that was transparent and didn't call attention to itself. But reading that novel gave me a vivid sense of the rhythms of the English language. It's texture, it's cadences, the way sentences can be constructed to obtain certain effects. I remember that I was, as I was reading, I found myself thinking about the characters during the times I was away from the book. I would try to anticipate what their thoughts and feelings might be when I returned to the book. I was utterly taken by the character of the mother, her tenacity her odd personality, her her faith. I remember closing the book when I finished reading it and feeling bereaved because all the people I had read about were gone now. I remember sitting there saying to myself, what power there is in this kind of creativity. Very soon after, I read A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Now, here was a picture of a middle-class Irish Catholic family. And Joyce was telling a story about ideas, confusions of the head and of the heart that I myself was experiencing and couldn't put into words. I was only 16 years old at the time. But here was a man mapping all that dark territory with the power of words and imagination. Those two books did it for me. And it was then that you knew you wanted to write stories? Yes. When I was done with Joyce, I said to myself, this is what I want to spend my life doing, writing stories. I I was only a kid, so I had no idea whether I would succeed or fail. I didn't even have an idea as to how to go about doing it. I just knew that I wanted to write stories. It unlocked something deep inside of me. And transformed me. No question about that. And writing stories is what I've done ever since that time.
1: As you began writing from your Orthodox Jewish background, you discovered that your culture collided with others. And you've described that in your books as a culture confrontation.
0: Yes, my first culture confrontation was with literature. Later on in my 20s, it was with the core ideas of Western culture because I went ahead and got a doctorate in philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. I didn't want a doctorate in literature because I was afraid it would make me too self-conscious about my writing. But I did want to know what Western culture was all about at its core, so I chose philosophy. I thought Western culture would be something I would want to write about, and I wanted to know
1: it well. You didn't set out to confront cultures then, but it it naturally happened. My particular life experience has
0: been that of cultures clashing in a certain way, confrontation of core elements, from my Jewish culture to literature, for example. I grew up at the heart, at the core of one culture. And then I encountered an element from the core of the general culture in which I was living, And that element was modern secular literature. That confrontation of cultures from the heart of one culture to the heart of the other culture is what I've been calling, quote, a core-to-core culture confrontation. There are many ways in which we encounter other cultures. We can encounter the periphery of another culture. It's noise, it's passing fads, it's pop culture, superstitious elements, and so on. Those are, without sounding too elitist, more or less peripheral elements of a culture in the sense that they're the easiest elements of a culture to acquire. They, they demand the least of the person acquiring them. They're interchangeable elements which come and go. They, they don't really affect the direction of a culture in any profound way. All cultures have these elements, and yes, it's an elitist view of culture. But the fact of the matter is that cultures are really made by the more creative elements in their midst. Those creative elements drag everyone else along sort of willy-nilly in their wake. Unless, of course, there's a cultural flood from the periphery, which is what some people think we may be suffering from these days, especially in the United States. Others had other kinds of cultural confrontations. Friends of mine encountered the world of science that they found stunning and to no small degree overwhelming. Others encountered Freud. I remember one of my friends reading Darwin, and that was the end of his view of Genesis. That was the world I grew up in. And the subject of my writing then became this confrontation. What happens? How do you feel? What do you think? What are your dreams? How do you relate to human beings around you? What are the dimensions of this confrontation? How does it affect family life? It's my feeling that in the modern period, we are all going through this sort of confrontation
1: one way or another. And this confrontation is regardless of religious background, believer or unbeliever? Absolutely. And now, in a major
0: way, the Islamic world is going through this kind of confrontation. But they're resisting it mightily, just as Judaism and Christendom did and as many Christians and Jews still do.
1: You wrote your first novel, The Chosen, to come to terms with your past. What elements of your religious upbringing did you need to come to terms with? The fundamentalism,
0: the very structured way of seeing the world, the givenness of tradition, the inability to maneuver and question The the legacy of the past that you are expected to absorb, master, and give back to the coming generation, untouched and unaltered. That was pretty much my beginning. And the first crack in that wall was literature. Literature presents you with alternative mappings of the human experience. You see that the experiences of other people and other cultures are as rich, coherent, troubled as your own experiences. They are as beset with suffering as yours. Literature is a kind of legitimate voyeurism through the keyhole of language where you really come to know other people's lives, their anguish, their loves, their passions. You often discover that once you dive into those lives and get behind the surface, the veneer, there's a real closeness.
1: Is this the idea that underneath the differing beliefs, religions, and cultures, that there's just a a sense of underlying basic humanity? That's right.
0: And that was astounding to me. It was astounding because I had always been taught and therefore believed that Jews were different in kind. We had a very unique destiny. And yes, Jews are different. But at the same time, what I was coming to learn was that we are all are very much the same in our passions, in our lusts, in our loves, in our drives, and in our fears. The differences are interesting because they lend texture and richness to the human experience. But it's the similarities that might just save us as a species.
1: Tell me more about what you mean by save us.
0: I think that this is one of the happy byproducts of literature. I'm not sure that literature aims for that. I think that serious literature aims for good sentences, good writing, and more or less serious subject matter, not filled with frivolity. But a byproduct of that is the effective making of maps, of other paths of life that I, as a reader, can then walk. That brings me closer to another world. And then I say, that's interesting.
1: I can relate to that. Does that explain, then, why your novels have such a broad appeal, though limited to Jewish culture?
0: James Joyce was once asked why he only wrote about Dublin. Even though he wrote about other places, we know Joyce as the writer of Dublin in the same way we know Dostoevsky as the writer of St. Petersburg, Kafka as the writer of Prague. So when he was asked why he only wrote about Dublin... Joyce responded by saying, for myself, I always write about Dublin because if I can get to the heart of Dublin, I can get to the heart of all cities in the world. In the particular is contained the universal. The greatness of the novel is that you are taken into the specifics of other worlds by the map-making abilities and the language abilities of another human being. So that if I spell out my particularities and you're reading them, and if the language is okay and the story is interesting, what you end up doing inside yourself is taking those particularities and linking them to your own. And those two generate a universal. You, as the reader, then function inside that universal.
1: That actually reminds me of a sentence from your novel, The Gift of Asher Lev. It says, art happens when what is seen is mixed with what is on the inside of the artist. That's exactly right. It's a
0: relational experience. Art happens somewhere along a relational arc between what you are and the object of creation. And that's why art is very often a different experience for each and every person. I'm convinced that the readers who come to my books experience them differently because they're not sitting as passive individuals with this thing called a book being pumped into them, filling their empty reservoir. That's not the way it works. They're coming to a book with a whole life, and it's the relationship between their life and the life inside the book that forms the experience of reading, the ARC. There's something very mystical about that. Yes, indeed. But there's something very mystical about gravity also, which we can't quite see, can we? (laughs) True, you can do mathematics on gravity, and it's harder to do mathematics on the relationship between a work of art and the person experiencing it. Both are invisible, and both are very real.
1: Throughout your work, there's a strong thread of autobiography. As a Jew, what has been the role of remembering?
0: I think Judaism is a memory religion par excellence. We are told to remember. Americans generally don't remember much beyond five years in the past. Who remembers the Persian Gulf War, for example?
1: I think Christians struggle with forgetting our past. Will you say more about the idea that Judaism is a memory religion? What does that mean? We have about 4,000 years of history to remember.
0: And what you are bidden to do as an intelligent Jew is to remember and incorporate that history into your essential being. The biblical images of Abraham and Jacob are real. The story of the binding of Isaac is real. The story of Joseph is real. The story of David and Solomon, that's a real story. It all becomes a part of of the way you think about the world. A cartographer doesn't make maps out of the imagination. He surveys. He looks at previous maps. He checks the roads. He gets information. He uses tools. An individual who makes maps of the human experience, and we all do that consciously or unconsciously, makes it with information or with tools. What Judaism wants Jews to do is to map the world with certain kinds of information. And that information consists of the value systems, the tensions, the successes and failures, the dreams and the terrors of the Jewish past. Now, I've been very careful with all of this because you can be so freighted with history that you can be paralyzed. That's the tension that we will all live under. How to use the history and not get weighted down to such a degree that you cannot function.
1: You've talked about the past on the collective level, but what about on the individual level? Is it important to have a knowledge of your own personal story? I think that in one
0: way or another, all of us have a story. People who don't know their story are devastated individuals Narrative is what holds life together, but narrative ought to be flexible enough so that you can insert new sentences here and there. And sometimes we begin the serious process of rewriting certain parts of our lives. A person who doesn't have a narrative is a sorry person.
1: Do you mean that they don't know where they've come from or where they're going?
0: Well, they they have no map. They're stumbling around. They're terrified. And terror ultimately leads to rage, either rage at yourself with an inclination towards self-destruction or rage at the world and you hurt somebody else.
1: We've touched on art somewhat. What are your views on the distinction between sacred and secular?
0: Sacred art depicts meta- historical moments by and large. It's fixed. It's an expression of the core of the church, its doctrines, its transcendent history. Nothing much changes in this art through the centuries. In the modern period, anything and everything is possible, even with a crucifixion. That's the nature of a modern secular world. The individual makes his or her own paradigms. And my feeling is that the richer the individual's awareness of the tensions of the past, the richer the modern paradigm he or she is going
1: to present to us. So on the level of creativity, the more an individual is aware of the past, the richer their art? The
0: deeper one one's awareness of one's roots in the past, the richer will be the tensions of the present and the way one presents any particular art. For example... There's a texture of Dostoevsky that you just don't find in most modern writing, especially American writing, because Dostoevsky was and has this enormous tension with the past of Russian religion and history. I might not care for his anti-Semitism, which I don't, or his passion for Russian glory, or the sense he had that Russia was the greatest culture in the world and that he didn't need the West. But that's not the issue here. The issue is what it did for his work. It added to it immeasurably.
1: Dostoevsky spent years in prison. Asher Lev, David Lurie, Danny Saunders, and several other of your characters, they suffered and went on to enormous creativity. How does suffering affect one's output of creativity in art in their life?
0: Well, it either matures you or destroys you. If it destroys you, we won't hear about you anymore. But if it matures you, then you might make a contribution. All of us, at one point or another in our lives, have suffered. If not in our flesh, then in the flesh of those we love. We will experience suffering. It's the task of the artist to take that experience and map it through his or her own way of seeing the world. That's what I tried to do with the individuals I was writing about.
1: So, what would you say about the idea of encountering the sacred in the midst of the secular?
0: My sense of it is that the sacred is everywhere. And by that I mean we're surrounded by mystery, we're surrounded by beauty. A child is born, and it's a mystery. A person dies, and that's a mystery. What are we doing here? That's a mystery. I have to respond to that one way or another. And that's what I mean by the sacred things that are given, yet oddly given. I have to respond to that and ask myself, what map do I make of this? What relationship do I have to this? I'm a writer, and I have to deal with such givens. You might tell me that the smile of a child is biologically and genetically driven. And I will say, fine. But even that statement is in many ways a mystery. Man's propensity toward killing is a mystery to me. Those aspects of ourselves that tend to drive us up and out of ourselves in search for realms of being beyond our mere mortality. Those are what I call the sacred. The constructive, the cooperative, the creative. Those are the sacred the destructive that is the demonic as i said earlier we're in a race with our own selves and we have no guarantee as to what to which of those two elements of ourselves is actually going to win that's why those of us concerned with the sacred have to work very hard we have to lobby for it we can be sure of one thing Those taken up by the demonic are very good at what they do. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at
1: restoringthesoul.com. You already know we live in a pornified world, but most of us are at a loss for how to navigate this sea of temptation. It's either ceaseless striving on the one hand or giving in to brokenness on the other. But doesn't the gospel offer us another way? The truth is that our sexual struggles are not actually about sex, but about a misdirected, God-given longing for deep connection. Dig deeper in my book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle.